Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the role of tech in American democracy. All right, let's start the show. Hey y'all, from NPR, you're listening to It's Been a Minute. I'm Sam Sanders. In this episode, more on the fallout from this month's insurrection of the Capitol. Today, we're going to focus on the internet and social media, where a lot of the pro-Trump extremism behind the attack has flourished. So I am not sure if I can even remember what Twitter was like before Donald Trump. But this month, I got a taste of that life again. Trump left Twitter. I mean, actually, Twitter kicked him off in the aftermath of the attack. After warning for what seemed like all of Trump's presidency, Jack Dorsey finally did it. This set off a ripple effect. A lot of other social media platforms did the same. And it seems like these bans could be permanent. These bans have already led to some big shifts in who talks where online. And it's also led to some big questions about how it all might permanently change the nature of the Internet as we know it. So to talk about all that's happened online since the Capitol siege and what it means for all of us going forward, I am joined now by two people who cover this stuff for a living. Shannon Bond and Bobby Allen, NPR's two rock star tech reporters. <laughs> Hello to you both. Hey, hey Sam. Sam. Now, y'all are both in the Bay Area because you cover, you know, Silicon Valley and tech stuff. But um, how far apart are y'all, like, miles as we tape this show remotely? I think we have, we have a body of water between us. I'm, I'm over in Berkeley <laughs> in the East Bay. Yeah, and I'm over in San Francisco. And I've, I've only been here, I think, for like nine months. And I've seen Shannon, what, maybe three times in person. We're mostly Slack friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a really big deal. The first time we actually like, like, he, like Bobby came and hung out masked at a distance in my yard. And we like had a beer and we're like, oh, wow, it's really nice to actually see you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You are real. Yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you two have been so busy, I'm guessing, these uh, last, what, two weeks. I think um, the way that the internet and social media has worked for years is now entirely fundamentally different. Trump being off of Twitter and off of Facebook, like, how big of a deal is that, y'all? Yeah, I mean, what you said about it suddenly feels like it's a different Twitter. I, like, I, I totally feel the same way. It is sort of bizarre because there's been so much over the past four years and, you know, even maybe, I guess five years thinking about the campaign where, you know, like for reporters, certainly for, you know, White House reporters, political reporters, but also for, for tech reporters and I think for almost anybody who's who's at all conscious online, like your day was so driven by like what did Trump tweet last yeah. And he's silent. Yeah. And I just think you kind of can't underscore as much as we and we can talk about this, like this was a long time coming and there's lots of legitimate criticism of the companies of like, why did this not happen sooner? It was a huge moment for this to happen. Like, it's a really big deal. So, you know, it wasn't just Twitter and Jack Dorsey and Trump getting kicked off Twitter. A lot of other platforms were involved in the sweeping bans that we've seen across the last week or two. Snapchat, YouTube, Amazon Web Services is involved. Facebook's involved. Can y'all just catch us up, Bobby and Shannon, on all the bans and where they have happened and who's shutting down what so far? Yeah, so if we start with social media, right? So Twitter has booted Trump permanently. Um, Facebook has what they describe as indefinitely suspended him. Um, we've also seen sort of a more sweeping crackdown on on QAnon, um, the QAnon conspiracy uh, 
collective delusion, whatever you want to call it. And then, and it's true, there's like smaller platforms. Reddit got rid of the Donald subreddit. Twitch banned Trump, although I don't know that I ever think about like Trump using Twitch, but... uh, I thought I saw somewhere that Pinterest banned him. Right, is there, does he have a Pinterest page? Like what's happening? What is Donald Trump doing on Pinterest? And, And then, as you mentioned, there's this whole, you know, there's other companies too that are kind of getting involved in this. There are the payment providers, right? So PayPal and Stripe are no longer processing payments and donations Uh for some like Trump supporting groups. So there was sort of this whole kind of ripple effect across a lot of other companies that started to take action, not directly just about Trump, but about other kind of other things in the the Trumposphere. Yeah. Talk me through what Amazon Web Services has been doing around these bans. They have been involved with this saga over Parler, which is the newish kind of right wing social media site for folks that are either leaving or getting booted off of Facebook and Twitter. But Amazon has shut down Parler. What's going on there? Yeah, so, um, you know, when Trump got kicked off of these major platforms and then a bevy of smaller platforms fell in line, these sort of niche social media platforms that sort of, um, you know, tell the world that they're a more welcome place for free speech than Facebook and Twitter because they have far fewer content moderation. Basically, anything goes in terms of what you can say or post. But many extremists and many um, far-right folks um, went to these services, and one of them was Parler. And pressure started mounting when people you know, took a look at what was happening on Parler in the lead-up to the insurrection attempt, and people were getting very specific about plans, you know, sharing mm. maps of the Capitol. I mean, on on apps like Parler and Gab, people were, you know, figuring out ways of how they could best break into the Capitol. I mean, there was oh, all... Wow. There was so all, they were casing the joint on Parler. They they were. And it was the way that, they, wow. you know, they were talking to each other. They were documenting it. And so Apple and Google said, OK, um, enough is enough. We're pulling the plug. They made it so it's impossible to download Parler on uh, like a smartphone or an iPad. And then Amazon Web Services totally pulled the plug, basically took them off the Internet by saying, we're not comfortable hosting you guys anymore. So flip the switch off and then Parler went dark. And this is what's interesting. I don't think, you know, I don't really think about it that much, but this Amazon Web Services story kind of showed all of us that one company run by one man can basically take a platform like Parler off the internet entirely because they own the servers. Well, you know, there's this whole kind of infrastructure layer that I think people, you know, average users don't really think about a lot. Um, there's actually, a, you know, company, other companies involved that are, you know, hosting the site or providing like security services. Um, and we've actually seen these kind of things happen before. So back in 2017, Cloudflare, which is um, one of these companies that offers these kind of services, they terminated their account with the Daily Stormer, which is this neo-Nazi website. And they said, you know, we just don't want to do business with this website anymore. You know, Bobby mentioned Gab, which is another alternative uh, social network that's really sort of you know pushed itself as being all about free speech. Back in 2018, the shooter in the um, Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, you know, had apparently used a Gab account. Um, And GoDaddy, which hosted Gab, um, it pulled service with Gab and and took it down. So, you know, a company like Cloudflare or like Amazon Web Services, right, they do have this kind of power to basically decide, you know, can these sites or these apps exist on the internet? The the question now, as all of this deplatforming of the alt-right is happening, is whether this makes them stronger or weaker. 
you know, their microphone may be smaller now and they're on these smaller, more obscure platforms. But I'm guessing when they're on the parlors and the gabs of the world, there is no moderation or pushback on them. And they can be even more fringe or radical. Yeah, this is a huge conversation happening out here now. I mean, if this all, like you said, you know, gets pushed to these niche platforms, these gabs and these parlors of the world, it still exists, right? It's still on the Internet. It's still part of the the tide of garbage that's on the Internet. But at least its its visibility is really reduced. Like, you know, your uncle, your grandma, or even you, you know, you might not, you know, run into it. Facebook and Twitter and not being able to get to, you know, millions or billions of people. So I, that that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, but there's this, you know, there's this thorny question of like, you know, if extremists are on these extremist platforms, you know, that is like the echo chamber effect on steroids. That could have like some pretty scary ramifications. And what, what, one thing, Sam, that I think is just super fascinating to watch in real time is if you really zoom out here... I think uh, nobody really knows what the rules of the road should be for the next, you know, generation of the internet, right? And we're seeing, you know, what's allowed and what's not and what the response is going to be. And some of the tech companies are saying, all right, we have some rules. You know, all the other tech companies have their own rules. Maybe government should come in and help us write, like, some rules that everyone would follow. And then the government hasn't. So now it's just a bunch of private companies with a bunch of private rules. And it's it's just kind of a mess. And these dudes who never wanted the responsibility. Lest we forget, Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook to be like a hot or not ranking (laughs) program for students on his college campus. That is correct. He wasn't asking to like be in charge of communication for the free world. And now here he is in this position. You know, I wonder watching us have this like existential crisis over who needs to be in charge of the American internet. It is fascinating. Like, you will see America, we are just like banging our heads against the wall, figuring out how to moderate this stuff. Meanwhile, these same companies, Facebook and Twitter, they censor on behalf of governments already. You know, it can be done and it is being done. It just depends on what country and where and how strict they want to be. Right. And, and, and that's, I think, comes when you have like regulation with real teeth behind it. I also just just mm. to step back a little bit on like to thinking specifically about this incident. I also I think one of the problems is like we're in this incredibly heightened moment, understandably, of like national crisis. And we are like trying to have these like fairly nuanced policy discussions. But like, let's not forget that Trump was banned from Twitter for inciting you know, violence against uh, another riot. branch of government. So also, like, the yeah. idea that you would sort of, like, I think it's absolutely legitimate to say, like, you know, we should be asking questions about, you know, and, and, and wondering if this is really the right way to do it. But I also kind of, kind of think we can say, and this was also, an like, an incredibly, hopefully, unique case. Um, and yeah. that, like, you know, if there is ever a time to, like, kind of act unilaterally, maybe that is the time to do it. Yeah. and, and but, an, but another thing is, Sam, you know, you can't talk about this without talking about the fact that Trump is kicked off these platforms just when Trump is about to lose power. There's going to be Democrats controlling Washington and Democrats controlling, you know, the congressional committees that are tasked with coming up with the future regulations for their own industry. So I don't think that's lost on them. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure these tech companies are saying, hey, Democrats, we kicked Trump off. So, like, be nice to (laughs) us again. (laughs) Exactly. You know? (laughs) All right. So I I can't believe you guys are so cynical. (laughs) (laughs) 
So this would usually be the part of the conversation where I have us spend about 20 or 25 minutes on net neutrality and Section 230 because <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to do that. But I am going to ask kind of an existential question about how the law should look at companies like Facebook mm-hmm. and Twitter. And that big question is, are these tech companies just private companies that can do whatever they want or have they become utilities, meaning that they have to be accessible to everyone because they are so integral to daily life? Uh, what does the law say? What is the current debate over that tension? And will it ever be resolved? I mean, a lot of this focus, so it's hard to talk about this without talking about Section 230 a little bit. So I'll try to talk about it really fast, which is just that it is it is this legal shield that does two things. One, it says you can't be sued for what people post on, on the platforms. This, the second is that Facebook and Twitter have wide berth to basically set the rules for what's allowed and what's not and enforce it themselves. And this law is the cornerstone of the internet. And let's remember, this doesn't just help Facebook and Twitter operate the way they do but it helps Wikipedia and it helps Yelp and it helps every single Mm -hmm. website that has some Mm -hmm. kind of comment online operate the way that they do. And so that is the the legal landscape in terms of, you know, liability. Now, in terms of uh, further regulation, I mean, that's sort of a a separate conversation, but I think most of the focus is going to be on what should we do to Section 230? Should we amend it? Should we completely scrap it? So there's a lot of different kind of proposals, but I think the Section 230 debate, and I'm sure, you know, Shannon can talk more about this too, is going to be, I think, um, center stage. Well, and I think, mm. Sam, you kind of put your finger on it, like when you were talking about sort of saying, you know, are Twitter and Facebook kind of utilities? I think one of the problems is because, as Bobby says, you know, the, the current legal framework with Section 230 applies to, you know, any online forum. So it's like your local community, if you're a local newspaper and they have like, you know, comments on, on the articles, it applies to them. It applies to like, I don't know, the like dog owners forum. Like it's all these little guys too where, the, where this applies. And I think part of the problem is we're trying to craft a set of rules that applies to them as well as to a company like Facebook, which is much more like a utility, is much more universal. And so I think one of the questions is, like, do we need to think about these big, big companies differently? Mm. You know, I think, especially with this QAnon stuff, I feel like a lot of it goes back to education and media literacy. And as George W. Bush once said, is our children learning? Like, (laughs) I think a lot of folks would be less susceptible to this Internet foolishness if, uh, you know, they knew a little more about how the Internet and the news works. I digress. Um, I have learned so much from this chat. We are going to take a little break right now. But listeners, stay with us. Coming up, Shannon and Bobby and I will uh, take a break from the serious news and play my favorite game, Who Said That? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores. Offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash minute. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe explains the importance of creating a safe space for therapy. 
I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that say that expression, like, I've never told that to anybody. That's when I know I've made some kind of momentous move with this person. They feel safe enough to expose that part of themselves and doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com minute. The world was shocked when pro-Trump extremists stormed and seized the U.S. Capitol. Throughout this tumultuous era, the NPR Politics Podcast has been there every day explaining and making sense of the news. We'll be doing that through the final days of the Trump administration as we all try to understand how this moment happened and what will come next. Your knowledge of the internet and social media apps will probably help you both out in playing our next game. It is called Who Said That? The game is quite simple. I share three quotes from the week of news. You got to guess who said it or what story I'm talking about or even fill in the blank. Um, There are no winners. There are no losers. uh, And I don't even really keep score because what does anything matter? It's 2021. (laughs) Okay, that was dark. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Cut that in post. Anywho, let's start. Okay, here's the first quote. This one is a fill in the blank. The Obamas did not use the garage, so the extra traffic to and from the command post caused no problem. Yet this solution, too, was short-lived after a Secret Service supervisor from the Trump-Kushner detail left an unpleasant mess in the Obama blank. (laughs) Their garage bathroom. Yes, Shannon, you got that point. Um, This is from a real doozy of a Washington Post story out this week that talks all about how... Uh, The Secret Service, which was tasked to guard Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner at their home in D.C., they weren't allowed to use any of the Ivanka Jared bathrooms in the house, of which there were, I think, (laughs) 6.5. So their fix was to use the restrooms at local restaurants and coffee shops and also use the restroom uh, down the street at the Obama's house? <laughs> it's it's so just bonkers to me. Here's my favorite graph from this Washington story all about Toilet Gate. It reads, after resorting to a porta potty, as well as bathrooms at the nearby home of former President Barack Obama and the not so nearby residence of Vice President Pence, the agents finally found a toilet to call their own. They began to rent a space from one of the neighbors down the street. For like $3,000 a month, right? Like, it's not yeah. cheap. Imagine Michelle Obama looking you in the face and saying, I'm sorry, sweetheart, you can't use my bathroom anymore. Because of course she'd say it with love. She seems very nice. You'd be so ashamed, though. I couldn't. Anyway, Shannon, you got that point. Woohoo. Here's the next quote. Guess who said it? Our administration would also work to attract content creator collectives, such as TikTok hype houses, where young artists collaborate. We need to help create similar artist collectives that utilize new technologies. Hmm. This is a candidate for New York City mayor. Who is this Andrew Yang? Oh, it's Andrew Yang. Yeah, Shannon for the win again. Sorry, Bobby scooped you there. I think we said at the same time. You're going to have to go through the Uh recordings uh and see who said it first. Uh Uh-huh. So this quote comes from Andrew Yang's campaign site for New York City mayor. We know Andrew Yang from his previous run for president. Uh, Now he's running for mayor of New York. And he says that part of his platform is helping uh, the kids, the Gen Zers, the creator collectives, establish these TikTok hype houses. 
Um, I know what a hype house is. For those who are listening but don't, Bobby, Shannon, tell folks what they are. Well, it's a lot of them are in L.A. There's some in Atlanta and some other cities. And it's basically um, where a bunch of young influencers live in usually like a palatial estate. And they just do TikTok videos all day, you know, to try to go viral. And uh, they're ridiculous. And they often cause lots of problems for neighbors. And there's a crackdown on some of them for being boisterous and out of control. But it's it's a pretty ridiculous concept, if you think of it, right? Yeah. Also, like, sounds, I mean, it seems unclear to me that they need government support. Like, I don't know. Like, what is he saying? Like, these already exist. The hype houses are flourishing. (laughs) The hype houses already have enough hype. Right? Like, why do they need, like, why is this part of his platform? Also, I don't understand. Why doesn't every candidate for mayor in New York have the platform of just, I will fix the subway? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. All right. Here is the last quote. Uh, For this one, you have to guess the internet phenomenon I'm alluding to. Okay, here it is. Soon may the Weller Man come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day, when the tongue is done, we'll take our leave and go. See Shanty TikTok. Yes. My face. Shannon is on a roll. Shannon is like Michael Jordan, 1990s era Bulls. I'm just super like. competitive. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, those are the lyrics of a 19th century sea shanty sung by someone named Nathan Evans on TikTok. His first post went viral with this sea shanty and a lot of other TikTokers added harmonies and instruments on top of that. And now apparently the biggest trend on TikTok are sea shanties. Uh, Gen Z has fallen in love with sea. Sh- uh, it's impossible say to it. say it. It's impossible <laughs> to say it. Sea <laughs> shanty, sea shanty, sea shanty, sea shanty. The wind's blew up her bird up turn up below my belly boys blow. The thing I love about it, it's like the thing that I think is most fun about TikTok is why I love the like the Ratatouille musical thing is just like the collaborative tools that they have built really are mm-hmm. genius. Like it is so easy just to kind of layer it on and so to see sort of the evolution of something, right? To go back and find like the first video and then like see it people adding on and it just becomes like there's something really sweet about that. And then also I have a four-year-old who's obsessed with pirates. So like really? I played him the sea shanty and now he like only wants to listen to sea shanties <laughs> i want Lil nas x <laughs> to make a hip-hop sea shanty that's what i need in my life it's only a matter of time before these are like charting right yeah yeah all right um shannon you have got the olympic gold Woo-hoo. for this game congratulations thank you just coming in hot stop the steal records <laughs> <laughs> Bobby's going to start a disinformation campaign. (laughs) We're going to have to kick Bobby off this platform. (laughs) Oh, man, this was so much fun. I learned a lot. I laughed a lot. Uh, Thanks to you both, Bobby Allen and Shannon Bond, NPR's two tech reporters. Um, Let's do it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. With civil unrest, the pandemic, and the economic crisis, you want to know what's happening right when you wake up. And that's why there is Up First, the news you need in about 10 minutes from NPR News. Listen every day. All right, for this next segment, we're going to move away from the news. We're going to move away from work. We're going to talk about laziness. You know, for me, in January 2021... 
I am already feeling so much pressure to not be lazy. But my next guest, they say we all got to try to let that pressure go in 2021. In fact, they wrote a book all about it. It is called Laziness Does Not Exist. Hey, Devin. Hi, hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm fiddling with the audio a little bit. That is Devin Price. Their book, it's about the obsession with work and being productive. Not just here in the U.S., but throughout the world. Devin calls this obsession the laziness lie. And it has three main tenants. And those tenants are that, uh, one, your worth is defined by your productivity. Two, you can't trust your own feelings of exhaustion or your needs and limitations. Um, And the third tenet of the laziness lie is that there's always more that you could be doing in basically every realm of life, not just work, but showing up for other people, activism, you know, not exercising enough, whatever it is. Devin didn't always see laziness this way. For most of their life, they were very productive, like very. So I finished my PhD when I was 25 years old. And I was... Wait, stop. <laughs> How does that even... <laughs> I didn't have a life. Okay. I took college classes in high school. But after I grad school, while working as a researcher, Devin got sick with the fever that just wouldn't go away for months. What ended up finally happening was I just needed to, like, stop going so fast. I needed to actually rest, mm-hmm. disappoint people mm-hmm. on my research team, eat more, and just stop looking at my life in terms of, like, how much I was doing. Yeah. What did that look like, the slowdown for you? I mean, like, I'm guessing you can't go from 100 to zero overnight. Yeah, I had to learn how to get kind of sneaky about it. I think, especially Mm. professionally, we kind of have to do, like, use the language of busyness to get away with doing less in the workplace, in a way. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So I would make sure I had something to bring to every week's lab meeting that, like, sounded like it was, like, a lot of impressive charts and statistics. And it was important (laughs) stuff, but I was like, if it looks impressive, then I can kind of cover up how much time, you know, maybe it only took me a day, and then I can take the day after that off. Um, And really just rethinking how I looked at other people too, right? Like, are my students lazy or are they overwhelmed like I am? And and so on and so forth. You know, you saying that uh, there was something you wrote in the book that really, really stuck with me. And I I wrote it down and I want to read it for our listeners. You wrote that like a lot of the people that we deem lazy are actually going through a lot that we cannot see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So much of what we call laziness is actually a person being held back by a ton of barriers, and we mm. can't see those barriers, or they're barriers, barriers we've been conditioned to think aren't legitimate, and so then we just reach for laziness as an easy explanation. So, you know, are my students skipping class because they're lazy and there's something wrong with them? Or are they working a full-time job dealing with, you know, I've had students who are dealing with like a sexual assault case with a classmate. So of course they don't want to come to class, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really gets to the heart of most of the things that we write off as laziness is just, we need to look at the person's context and what's getting in their way. Yeah. Uh, So you in the book, Look into where the word lazy even comes from. You trace the word's etymology. Where does it come from? When is it, like, what, what's the first utterance of the word lazy? 
Yeah. So lazy seems to have two roots from around the 1500s. It has like an old German and, and um, archaic English root. And basically um, one of the meanings is, uh, for one of the root words is feeble or weak. And the other root mm. word is morally corrupt, which really oh, yeah. gets to the heart of like the weird doublespeak that's at work whenever we call someone lazy. We're saying that they have some kind of weakness or limitation but at the very same time, we're saying that that's making them evil. And it doesn't really make any sense when you think about those two things. Like, how can they exist at the same time? How can somebody be evil yeah. for needing help, you know? Yeah. What do you say to the folks hearing the two of us right now? You know, we're kind of in lockstep. I'm hearing what you're saying. I am picking up what you're putting down. But there's probably a good number of our listeners who are saying, this is bogus. Just work. Get a job. Figure it out. When you encounter those folks that can't even wrap their head around the big idea of your book, how do you talk to them? Um, one, well, the first thing is I was surprised at how little I'm hearing that pushback. The only time people really push mm. back with me, they, co they come to me to say, sure, this might all be true for other people, but I'm lazy. I know deep down I'm lazy. Like uh -huh. People say it about themselves, not others, which is really interesting to me. Wow. What do you say um, to those folks when they say, hey, secret, I'm lazy? <laughs> well, I say you're really not giving yourself credit for all that you're doing. Like, what are you dealing with that in somebody else, especially someone else you loved, you would give them some latitude for that you're not mm. taking as a reasonable context or excuse for yourself, mm. you know? Like, there's something mm. both kind of martyring and kind of grandiose to say, I, I have to live up to this standard that nobody else that I love yeah would kind of live up to. Oh my God, totally. Do you think our productivity crisis and our maybe unhealthy views about laziness, do you think it changes? It feels as if the whole country and the whole world is shifting a lot right now. Our politics, the way we commune with each other. I mean, between the pandemic and the last four years of national politics, it seems like everything is up for grabs right now and could be changing. Do you think in all these shifts that our views about work and productivity change as well? I think so. I think we've reached a moment where the absurdity and the unwinnability of these beliefs are mm. being revealed to more and more people. But I think we're yeah. also not out of the woods yet, right? So, um, okay. so Forbes had a report that came out um, a couple months ago showing that worker productivity had gone up about 40% over the pandemic because... Not, what? Yeah, yeah. Wait, stop. That is, no, come on. Yeah, yeah, because people don't have a commute. They don't have as many <sighs> meetings, like a lot of, and because wow. people are like working to distract themselves from existential dread. Life. <laughs> yeah. So worker productivity had gone up, but this was also at the same time, especially like early into work from home, a lot of companies started buying screen logging software for their employees or key tracking software oh to make sure oh they God. weren't cheating and being lazy and, and still working really hard during a pandemic. And so I do think more and more people are seeing how absurd and unfair and unjust it is. But most of us aren't like free of those pressures as much as we recognize that they're absurd. So I really hope we can yeah. do something with this to get some momentum and actually change things. Because I do think more and more people are really ready for the conversation, which is good. Yeah. For folks that heard this chat and just don't know where to start in combating overproductivity and our bad ideas about laziness, what's one quick and dirty piece of practical advice on how to begin to break free from this stuff? A quick and dirty thing they can do beginning right now. 
I think find someone in your life that you see in a uncharitable light and see if you can think about why they're making choices that don't look ideal to you. So that can be something as simple mm. as if someone's on the corner asking for money, maybe instead of wondering about what they're going to do with the money, just give them the money if you can afford to. You know, just yeah. just because I think it's easier for us to practice this stuff first on other people and then we can start realizing, hey, maybe I'm not lazy either. Maybe I'm okay and worthy no matter yeah. what I do. Devin, thank you so much for this book and for this conversation. Listeners, Devin Price's book is called Laziness Does Not Exist. I think it's going to be quite helpful to you. Thanks, Devin. Thanks for having me, Sam. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey Sam, my name is Jenny. I live in Burlington, Vermont. The best thing that happened to me this past week actually happened to my husband. He was able to get the first of the COVID vaccine shots. And he is an infectious disease doctor, so his risk is a little bit higher. And I have a form of leukemia, which puts me at um, much greater risk. And I'm just really grateful for science. Hi, Sam. This is Linda from Salem, Oregon. This week, I got to see my parents. They are both at end stage for their various conditions. And after nine long months, the facility gave us compassionate visit. So I was able to see them in person. I don't know if they realize what a significant thing that was, or even that I was there. But I know, and I believe their soul knows. Hey Sam, this is Shannon from San Diego. The best part of my week happened today, when over Zoom, we got to watch my baby brother get married to a wonderful woman in a backyard wedding in Seattle. Makes it extra hard is that our father died in March, and so we know that he would have been so proud watching our brother get married. Hey Sam. My name's Grant from New Jersey. And the best thing to happen to me this week is I will go home tonight, go to sleep, and wake up tomorrow with 31 months of continuous sobriety from heroin after 19 years battling it. And that's something to be proud of. Hi, Sam. This is Sarah from Orlando, Florida. I just got a call letting me know that I'd been admitted to Harvard Law School. My mom sacrificed everything, including her own career as an attorney in Colombia, to give me a chance to succeed in this country. She's been my motivation and my rock through everything I do, and I can't wait to share the good news with her. Anyway, thank you for the show, and thank you for everything you do. Thanks a lot. Thank you for all you do and for getting me through the week in the news. Thanks for your wonderful podcast. It's a highlight of my week. Have a good week. Thanks. Wow. Every week, this segment just puts so much in perspective for me. How can I not be amazed by all the beautiful, wonderful miracles all around us every day? Thanks to all those listeners you just heard. Sarah, Grant, Shannon, Linda, and Jenny, you brought me much joy this weekend. Listeners, don't forget, you can share the best part of your week with the show at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and send that voice memo to me 
via email. The email address is samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our new intern is Liam McBain. Liam, welcome. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, stay safe, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We will talk soon.